Hey, good morning, everybody. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to continue our journey today. And while you are uh, finding that, let me just remind you that out in the atrium, we have our Say Yes campaign display. And uh, that is out there to be a reminder. It's, just, it's uh, of, of our growing children's ministries, our growing student ministries, and, uh, which is a wonderful thing to see them growing the way they are and blossoming. It takes many people to pull those ministries off. And maybe, just maybe, God is saying to you this morning, say yes. Say yes to kids. Say yes to students. Make your life available. Let me work through you to reach them. And if that's the Lord nudging you today, then say yes. And just go outside after our service today and stop by that uh, display. There's some of our volunteers out there. They'd love to talk to you about what being involved in children's and students ministry here at New Life is like. And, uh, but let me just encourage you. Say yes to these kids. Say yes to our students. They, they need you. God needs you to say yes. And I certainly hope you will do that. Well, we are cruising right along in 1 Timothy and uh, I hope that you're finding this series um, um, enlightening. I hope you're learning quite a bit. I hope you're being challenged by some of these truths. And, and that's the whole goal here. And I hope that's definitely happening. Now, let me just ask you this question as we get started. What is something in your life that you just um, highly value? I'm going to give you a minute to kind of think about that. What is something in your life right now that you highly value? Maybe another way to ask us the same question is, if you were gonna make an inventory, if you're gonna take an inventory of your life that reflects what you value the most, what's gonna be on that list? Now, I hope we would all agree that people over things, okay? I hope that people over things, but honestly, does not, you know, over-spiritualize this question. There can be some things on that list too. But hopefully the top thing is not a thing, it's a person. So I hope we value people over things. You know, in life, we often assign value to those things that we really love. Our love for someone, our love for something, usually raises the value we put um, on that particular um, thing. You know, we, we are looking at 1 Timothy, and, and we've seen how Paul is really drilling down on this idea of being a church of sound doctrine, um, orderly worship, godly leadership. We ask the question, why is he hammering these topics so hard? It's because of this. God puts a high value on the church. Consequently, he puts a high value on us. I read about a uh, family who was uh, taking a vacation over in Paris, and they visited uh, just a little antique tr trinket shop there. Nothing special, just a small little place. And uh, the father of that family, he bought a uh, amber necklace. Oh, this would be good. It was cheap, it wasn't very expensive, a little souvenir, take home. When they were going through customs back in the United States, he was annoyed that he had to pay so much in duty and customs to get through. And so he was like, well, what is so special about this necklace? It's just a souvenir. Why did I have to pay so much to, to bring it home. So he took it to a local jeweler and the jeweler took one look at it under a magnifying glass and he said, I'll give you 25 grand for it right now. And the, the man was surprised. I didn't pay anywhere near that. And then he got to thinking like a lot of us would, you know what, if you were so quick to offer me 25 grand, it's probably worth more than that. So he took it to another jeweler, this time more reputable, somebody that could appraise it officially, and the same thing happened. The guy looked at it underneath the magnifying glass, only this time he offered him $35,000 for this little amber necklace. And so the man was like, you gotta tell me, 
what is so special about this necklace that, that you and another jeweler are offering me big money for this necklace? And he said, come here, I'll show you why. And they both peered through the magnifying glass and then right there was this inscription that said this, from Napoleon Bonaparte to Josephine. The value of the necklace came from its identification with a famous person. We are the church and we are so highly valued by God. It is because our value is directly connected to Jesus Christ. That's our value. Have you ever stopped to just wonder and to think for just a minute, why does God value us so much? Why does God do what he does for us? Why did he do what he did? Why are we so valued by God? You know, if you do a quick examination from scripture, that question, the answer to it, kind of quickly becomes available to us. Why? Well, the Bible says that Christ founded the church. If you ever invented something or created something, or you're like, I am proud of this, and you value what you create. Well, the Lord created the church. He founded it. Why else? The Bible tells us that Christ died for the church. I, I don't know what you would be willing to die for, but the things that you would die for are of great value. Well, Jesus died for the church. You, you know what else the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us that, that, uh, that Jesus identifies intimately with the church. Do you remember when Paul was going around in Acts chapter nine persecuting the Christians of the early church? And the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. It was a bright light and it blinded Paul. And what did the Lord say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now Paul was persecuting Christians. He was persecuting the church. But, but the Lord turned it very personal. Why are you doing this to me? It's because the Lord identifies very intimately with the church, with us. There's a lot of value here. Why else? If you just look at the Bible, what language does it use? It talks about the church being the bride of Christ. Are you familiar with this language? I mean, it's like this relationship. It's meant to go together. Jesus and the church, it's, it's highly valued. Well, what else? The Bible talks about it in this language, that we are the body of Christ. So why does the Lord value the church so much, value us? These are just a few of the things that put a lot of value on, on what we're doing here and all that the Lord has put together. He feels about, very strongly about us. And honestly, I'll tell you this, that the Lord feels so strongly about us, I turn around and think it is a great privilege to be so valued. It's also a tremendous responsibility to live accordingly to the truth of the gospel. I love this next part of 1 Timothy that we come to in our series. I've been looking forward to, to these next few verses because what they do for us is that it just kind of lays out how God feels about the church, why there's so much value on the church, and quite honestly, there are three fundamental truths at the end of 1 Timothy chapter three that we have to understand as a church family. We have to own these things. That we, we cannot have any confusion on how the Lord feels about his church. I tell you, if we can really lock in and all of us walk out of here today understanding these three fundamental truths about the church, we are gonna be better off for it as followers of Jesus. I promise you that. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, and we're just gonna start reading together. This is where we left off last week. Paul said, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that 
if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Well, that's reflective very much, isn't it, of the first three chapters? Sound doctrine, orderly worship, godly leadership. So what he's saying is like, this is how you know how to behave, basically. And then he gives us these three descriptive phrases of the church. You'll know how to conduct yourself in what? God's household, which is the church of the living God and pillar and foundation of the truth. These few verses right here at the end of 1 Timothy chapter three, they deserve our full attention today because they clearly communicate how God feels about the church, how he values the church. Here's the first foundational truth that we learn right here from 1 Timothy 3. It's this, we are, I'm talking about us right here in this room, the church around the world, we are the expression of God's family. If you're taking notes today, if you're in the app, this is a fill in the blank. We are an expression of God's family. That's what he means when he says that we are God's household. God's household. Think about it like your own household, uh, your very own. Like I have a household inside my house. Hold is my wife and my two sons. My household operates according to my rules, at least theoretically anyway, my rules, okay? Okay? But you know, there are rules, there are boundaries that we have in place for our two sons, Neil and Brock. You know, those, those uh, rules, those guidelines revolve around, you know, behavior, respect, boundaries. There are things that we don't allow our sons to do or be involved with or to watch. There are things that they are allowed to do, but we put limits and boundaries around those things. And uh, my boys, and I, my boys um, understand that my wife and I, we have this expectation that how they respond to us is going to be a response of respect, it's gonna be a, a response of obedience. There's a lot, why? Because this is my household. Now think about it like this. We are living in God's household. That's the words that Paul uses to describe who we are. We live in God's household. We have to understand this as Christians. We join God's family. When we die to ourselves and we say, I'm gonna follow you, Jesus, with all my heart because I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection and I'm committed to you 100%. It's like saying, God, I'm joining your family. I'm gonna surrender to your household. Why? Because the Bible speaks of God as our heavenly father. And all throughout scriptures, we are referred to as God's children. This is language to be understood within the household of, of God. And that's how Paul is talking about it. That's how we should understand it. I can tell you what I value the most in this world is what's inside my household. If you ask me, Joe, what are you willing to die for in this world? I can just be blunt with you. That list is very small. But I can tell you what's on that list would be the members of my household. My wife, my sons, I would die for them without hesitation. Why? Because they are of great value to me. We are God's family. We are God's household. And isn't that the very thing that the Lord did for his family? Didn't he not die for his family? 
So this language that Paul uses here in verse 15, it's very appropriate and it helps us understand this very foundational principle, this truth of the church that we are an expression. The church is an expression. Your individual life is an expression of God's family. We're not in this alone, we're in this together and it is God's family. Now, there is a second very fundamental truth about the church that Paul highlights for us. If you're taking notes, I would say it like this. We are the dwelling place of God's presence. The church, us, you gotta think of your, I'm talking about us in this room right here. We are the dwelling place of God's presence. This is how Paul says it. The church of the living God. I tell you, if you were to say that to most people who have no context, I'm a part of the church of the living God, they're gonna be like, say what? What, is that? what does it mean to be the church of the living God? This is where going back in the Old Testament actually helps us have some understanding of what Paul means when we say the church of the living God. As we studied through the book of Acts and now into Timothy, this is something that we came across a lot. Jewish people who were becoming Christians, they had a hard time releasing a lot of the rules and guidelines that they had grown up with. Some of that revolved around the temple. And a lot for a Jewish person, uh, back in Bible days, their worship of God and their understanding of God's dwelling, it focused around a physical structure known as the temple. And so if you go back into the Old Testament and you read about and you track with the story of the Bible, how God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Remember the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and Moses saying, let my people go. You know that whole story? If you track after they cross the Red Sea and they're wandering in the wilderness, God gave them a list of rules and guidelines. He's like, this is how we're gonna do life together. You understand this about me. I'm gonna understand this about you. And, and he set up these this way of living. Well, it says in Exodus chapter 25, you don't need to turn there, it's gonna be on the screen behind me in verse eight. This is what God said to Moses. He says, have them make for me a sanctuary and I will do what? I will dwell among them, okay? Then it goes on to say, make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now this word tabernacle, you come across it all the time in the Old Testament. It just means tent, it means a place of dwelling. That's what that tabernacle meant. This would be the place where God would meet his people. Okay, that's how it was supposed to set up. This was not an old tent. This was actually a very elaborate tent. God gave them very specific instructions on what to make it out of. You know, if you keep reading and tracking through the story, you come to Exodus chapter 25, and it says this in verse one. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. And he starts the list like this. Gold, silver, bronze. So we already know this is not a hunting tent. This is not, a, this is not something we take camping on the weekends, okay? Gold, silver, bronze, purple, blue, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skin, dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. This is an impress, this is a very impressive tent. It's an extremely impressive tent. But it was more than just a tent. God was having them build a sanctuary where he would dwell 
among them. He also wanted to make sure they're gonna obey him completely. And God knew they needed this. God knew at this time in history, they needed something they could look at because right before this, Moses had gone up onto the mountain and he was a long time from coming down. And the Israelites were like, where's Moses? I guess he left us, guess he's gone. You know what we should do? Perfect sense, let's melt all of our gold and make a calf and worship it. You know, it's like, what? These are people that were hungry to see God's presence. And so God said, I'm gonna give you a tent and I'm gonna make my presence known and you're gonna know that I dwell among my people. If you were to keep reading into Exodus chapter 40, listen to how God made his presence known among the Israelites. Starting in verse 34, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Man, I'll tell you, you ever wonder, is God with us? Sure is, do you see the cloud? And at nighttime, this cloud would glow with fire. Oh, God made his presence. He's like, this is where I will dwell among you. My dwelling will be on this tabernacle and you'll know I'm with you and you'll know when I want you to go, when I want you to stop. Here's the sign, it's gonna be a cloud, pretty magnificent. Well, as if you track through the rest of the Old Testament, what do we learn? That the tabernacle will eventually go away and it would be replaced by what? The temple. King David desperately wanted to build God a permanent dwelling place. And God said to David, no way, Jose, but your son can do it. And so Solomon builds his grand temple. You keep tracking through the Old Testament, that temple gets destroyed. Later, many years later, there'll be a second temple built in the exact same spot. This is the temple that was around when Jesus was walking the earth. This is the temple that Jesus cleared out with whips and overturned tables. Remember that? This is the temple that Jesus was walking around and he said to his disciples, do you see all these stones? Knock them all down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Of course, Jesus, what was he talking about? He was talking about himself. He was talking about the resurrection and how everything is going to change three days after he dies. And the presence of God is no longer gonna be centered on a structure, it's going to be somewhere else. Where is that somewhere else? Us. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, listen to these words carefully. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Just let that soak in for just a minute. I don't want, this is so foundational. We, we are that temple. God has made the church his new dwelling place. And the church being made up of individuals, individual Christians all around the world. The church is the people. And God has centered his presence and his dwelling, the Holy Spirit on his people. And this is where God makes his presence known now. We are the church of the living God. Ephesians chapter two says it like this, verse 19. 
He says, you know, consequently, when you become a Christ follower, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So this is an acknowledgement of what has journeyed through the tabernacle, the temple, and now what, the apostles? What were they building? Jesus Christ himself was the chief cornerstone. If you know anything about construction, the cornerstone is the most important block that you build everything on, and that's Jesus, because we're building something. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him, you too are built together to become what? A dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is a pretty magnificent thing when you think about the church of the living God, that God makes his dwelling among us. And so when you think about what Paul is writing here in Timothy, and you think about our practices here as a church, and we talk about great worship services and obeying God's word and living faithfully and respecting the Lord with our bodies and not doing anything inappropriate, and on and on and on, and, and what we do as a church and how we reach out for the lost, this is all a reflection of the church of the living God. God, because God dwells here. So Paul says we're valuable because we are an expression of God's family. That's God's household. We are the dwelling place of God's presence. That's the church of the living God. And he also gives us one more very descriptive phrase. He says that we are the pillar and foundation of truth. Here's the words that I would put on it. We are the guardians of God's word. That's what the church is. We're the guardians of God's word. Do you remember where Timothy is living when Paul wrote this to him? He's living in the city of Ephesus. Paul spent three years there. Do you recall from our Acts study in Acts chapter 19 what the most prominent feature in the landscape was in the city of Ephesus? It was the temple to Artemis. Do you remember? It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This building, 450 feet by 250 feet, it had 127 columns or pillars all the way around it, 60 feet tall that supported the roof. So when Paul says pillar and foundation of truth, the people of Ephesus would not have had to think very hard to get a mental picture of what Paul is talking about. They just had to walk outside their house and see this temple with all the pillars. It's an interesting description for the church. I wanna show you something I have right here. I have a pillar. Now, it's not 60 feet tall, and it did not come from Ephesus. It came from Hobby Lobby. And so, but we know what a pillar is, right? This is a pillar. What does a pillar do? It supports things. You put a bunch of pillars together, it will support a roof. Pillars are to be foundations. They hold things up. And so as Paul is writing to all these Christians in Ephesus, he says, I want you to think of the church like a pillar. And that's how we should understand this today. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna label this pillar this. This is the church. Can you guys see that? This is the imagery of 1 Timothy 3. The church is a pillar. So what does this pillar support? The pillar supports the truth. What is the truth? That Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose to life, living today, 
The truth is the good news. This right here is the foundational illustration of what the church is. We are the pillar, we are the foundation for the truth. Sometimes you might wonder, man, Pastor Joe, he sure harps on keeping the, the Bible what it is and the infallible word of God, and, and that's because we, as the church, are the pillar for the truth. We hold it up. We're the very foundation. We are not supposed to change this. We are not supposed to devalue this. We keep Jesus in a high place. We hold the word of God in a high place because this is who we are, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is the kind of church we're gonna stay because this is who we are. This is what God values. This is why he holds us in such high esteem. We are the very household of God. We are the church of the living God who dwells among his people through the Holy Spirit. And we are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. I'll be honest with you, it's a great privilege to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Wouldn't you agree? It is also an incredible responsibility to continually hold this word up high and to hold it firm. To take on the responsibility to pass this on from age to age, from generation to generation. Holding it fast, defending it, against false teachers that would threaten it. That's from the first century all the way to the 21st century, all the way to the return of Christ. They will always be attacked. And it's a great responsibility. You know what else it is? It's, it's a great responsibility to proclaim the word of God, to hold it up high. You know, like the pillars of this mighty temple, the word of God is to be held up the same way. Is it any wonder why we're so valuable to God? His household, church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. And it's all a reflection of what? The supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's what verse 16 is. Look at verse 16, our final verse today. Beyond all question, Paul says, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. In other words, the overflow of all of this, it is somewhat mysterious, but it's all built on Jesus. He says this about Jesus. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. If you were to spend some time, and you will in your life groups this week, if you'll spend some time with each of these descriptions of Jesus, and unpack them scripturally and understand the meaning and the depth of this description, you understand the supremacy of Christ is over it all. Real briefly, it says he appeared in the flesh. What does Paul mean by that? It means that God stepped out of heaven and he took the form of a man and that was Jesus and walked the earth. Jesus is God in human form. That is the incarnation. So Paul is acknowledging this truth. He appeared in the flesh. That speaks to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. What else did Paul say? He was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? 
He came up out of the water and the heavens opened up and the spirit of God came down upon him and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. He was vindicated by the spirit. Supremacy of Christ, that's what we're talking about here. It's what separates Christianity apart from everything. What else did, did Paul say? He was seen by angels. Who was the first to announce the birth of the Messiah? It was an angel. The angels saw him, the angels announced him, the angels, angels are all over the ministry of Jesus. Paul said that he was preached among the nations. That started in Acts chapter two, and it continues on to this day, and it will continue on until the return of Christ. He was believed on in the world. Christians are all around the globe. They're in public places, they're in private places. They're in free places, they're in persecuted places. But there are Christians all over the world today worshiping the Heavenly Father. Why? Because this word has been preached and it has gone out all the way around the world. And finally says, was taken up into glory. We saw that in Acts chapter one, when Jesus ascended into heaven. You know what, friends? He's gonna return again one day. All of this description speaks to the supremacy of Jesus. Why are we highly valued? What does Paul say? Because we're God's household. We're his family. We're the church of the living God. God dwells in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. God's presence. It's not a building. Certainly not this building. It's us. And we are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Friends, if you can walk out of here today Owning and know, knowing and owning these foundational truths, we are miles ahead of where many other Christians. And I'll tell you, it will dictate the things that we value ourselves, what we believe are important, and the mission that we put our hand to to accomplish for our Lord. Everything based on this.